Well, um, it's been a while since uh, I've had to talk to a... Uh, actually, we're using my phone to record this, so it's, it's been a while since um, I've had to talk to a phone. Uh, I was really looking forward to coming back and seeing your guys' faces um, and addressing you personally because uh, that's what we're going to do today. Um, this is something that I've personally never done before. We haven't, I don't think we've really done uh, much at all in the history of our church. Um, if, if you're tuning in for the first time, what we usually do is uh, we have a preaching calendar where we've set apart uh, specific books and topics to go through um, as a church uh, to hear from God's Word. But today um, and one other Sunday uh, in the year uh, will be a time where I come before you without uh, really much of a manuscript. I've just got a few notes that I've uh, jostled down um, so I can speak to you um, as your pastor from the heart, more personally, uh, more intentionally uh, about some things that uh, have been on my heart for you guys as a church community, as I've prayed for you, as I've thought about you. So that's what we're doing today. And just like uh, Brother Kevin uh, announced, I have just come back from my honeymoon. Um, so my wife and I, Heidi, uh, my wife, <laughs> still very new to, uh, to my lips, we, we just came back from New Zealand a few days ago. And praise be to God that we were able to go at all in the first place because uh, we left on the 22nd. And... That was the day before the New South Wales gov government just shut everything down and locked down uh, the state. So we were able to leave just before, and we enjoyed a, an amazing two weeks over in New Zealand. We spent the majority of our time over there uh, in a camper van. Uh, so if you don't know what a camper van is, it's like a giant uh, self-sustained uh caravan truck thing that you just drive around. So we, we had that, and we were driving all around the South Island. We saw some amazing, uh, beautiful sights, just taking in God's creation. Um, it was a lot of driving. Uh, it was very bumpy at times, but um, it was still such uh, a privilege. Uh, it was so enjoyable and restful uh, and, and amazing to enjoy uh, with my wife. Um, and the thing about campervaning, though, is it's self-sustained. That's kind of the thing. So everything that you need is in that campervan. Um, it's really amazing how they set out such a small space to fit a bed, to fit a little kitchen, um, even a toilet and a shower, and even a little table at the front where you can you know, sit down to you know, do some work. Or, well, obviously, we're not really doing work right now. <laughs> on our honeymoon, but uh, yeah, may maybe read something or eat something. And then obviously at the front, you have the passenger seat and the driver's seat. It's completely self-sustained. Um, so we use everything. We obviously uh, use the kitchen to, to cook food. Um, we slept on the beds. We, we used the shower. It wasn't, you know, the most spacious thing, but it, it still, there was a shower. Uh, we used the toilet. Um, it was completely self-sustained, and 
it took us a while to get our bearings. Initially, we had no idea what we were doing. The first night, um, we thought we weren't going to make it, <laughs> honestly. Uh, but we, we, we got through uh, that ordeal, and we learned how to use a camper van. And it was this completely amazing, self-sustained vehicle. And we felt like by the end of it, we could just continue uh, for as long as uh, we could. But um, we ended up coming back to a hotel in Christchurch, and uh, we spent the last five days uh, there. So that was good, too. But um, you know, as I was thinking about how self-sustained, how self-sufficient this camper van was, I actually thought um, about us. I thought about many of us uh, in our church community. Because I think that's what we've become like. I think many of us have become very good at being self-sufficient and self-sustained because we've been through some things, haven't we? We've been through things as a church community. Uh, we've been through some really disappointing things, uh, you know, leaders being fired for uh, moral failures. Um, we've, you know, went through a merge and it didn't really end up happening. We ended up becoming a demerge. Uh, you know, we went through COVID and not being able to gather together for a long time. And, and, and even personally, I, I know many of you have been through some hard things, right? relational uh, breakdowns, uh, marriage struggles, uh, financial struggles, um, illnesses. And then what really happens after you go through many hard things, it, you know, it becomes, it's a slog initially, but it really becomes something that you weather and you endure, and eventually you become very good at becoming self-sustained, right? self-sufficient. And I just wonder how for many of us, you know, week after week, we've, be we've become so self-sustained and so self-sufficient that I, I'm not sure how much of us, how many of us can say that really we... Are we God-sustained? Are, are, are our weeks God-sustained? Are our weeks inclusive? And do they involve God at all? Every morning, do we wake up needing God, needing His mercy to break into our lives? Or can we go days, weeks, months you know, without God? Um, this week, uh, my wife reminded me of uh, a wonderful quote by A.W. Tozer. Um, he's an influential uh, pastor theologian. Uh, he's written a lot of amazing books. Um, and he said, uh, this one thing, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I'll say it again. What comes into our minds when we think about God that's the most important thing about us. And what he means by that is there is no one higher. There's no one more important that you could know in your existence than God. He's God. 
So what comes into your mind when you think about God, whether that is a high view or a low view, that's really the most important thing about us as people. And so I want to ask you, what comes to mind when you think about God? Do you actually think highly of him? That he's God, that he's the creator, that he saves you, that he's there with you, that he's constantly walking alongside you. Do you, do you need him? And I don't just mean conceptually. You know, in your mind, yeah, God is God. God is great. I, I, I need God. But, but I do mean functionally. Do you need him functionally and practically? Do you live your life with God at the center? And I want you to ponder that as we go through uh, this passage that uh, our brother Kevin read today. It comes from the book of Nehemiah. And this is actually a book we're going to be going through as a church together in about two months' time. And um, as I was just studying ahead and, and reading and meditating, um, I, I felt convicted that this was a, a, a word for our church now. Uh, just a preview, if uh, you might think of it that way. And Nehemiah is uh, written in the context of uh, the people of God coming back from exile, from Babylonian exile. And they return to Jerusalem, right? this broken down city, their home, and they're rebuilding. It's been years of hardship. It's been a slog. It's been years of fending for themselves. But they're finally back to rebuild this great city, or this city that was once great. And the thing is, uh, little did they know that um, before they rebuild this great city, God's desire is for them to be rebuilt as his people. So in this uh, chapter that we're looking at today, in chapter 9, what actually comes right before in chapter 8 is that they gather together. They just get together as a people. Uh, They finish building uh, the wall, uh, the outer wall of Jerusalem. But they're not done. So they get together, and they get together simply just to hear the book of the law, the word of God being read to them. And as the word of God, as the book of the law is read to them, this amazing thing happens where the people just remember who God is. They remember who God is and their hearts are pierced. Their hearts are cut. And they come before God in earnest repentance. And they seal the covenant. The covenant... That, uh, that God made with uh, their forefathers, uh, Abraham and Moses. And uh, it's this beautiful renewal. It's this beautiful revival that we see. And I really believe that's what we need because maybe this sounds very familiar to you. Our church, our community, we've been through some stuff. We've been through some hard things. We've been through years of and offending for ourselves. And as we come together to rebuild, right, to rebuild 
our church, all the structures, all the programs, all the ministry teams. I really believe that God desires for us to be rebuilt first as his people. To live in a way where God is God, truly. Where God is the most important person we could ever know. To live in a way where God actually matters every day. So what I want to do, actually, uh, is I want to read from the book, just as God's people did. And I'm going to start by reading from verse 6, and I'll pause at a few uh, you know, places to expound and to, to call your attention uh, to who God is, but as you read along with me from verse 6, I I want you to pay attention to all the times that uh, the the people of God address God in relation to who he is and what he has done. So every time you see the word you, right, they're talking to God about God and they're reminding themselves of who he is. Every time you see the word you, I would like you to ponder what that means for you personally, how you've experienced this God in your own life. So we're going to start from verse 6. This is what the people exclaim and they praise God with. The very first thing is they say, you are the Lord. I just want to pause there. For a moment, you are the Lord, you alone. And that word Lord that we see, it's a Hebrew name, Yahweh. It's a name that only belongs to God. It's a name that was so holy that they actually refused to say it. They replaced it with uh, a name, uh, another word for Lord, Adonai. But Yahweh means I am who I am. Yahweh means the God who is entirely self-existing. Before all of time, all of creation, he needs no one else. He's God. He's holy. So you are the Lord, you alone. And the next they say, You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. And I want to draw your attention to that. They're talking about God, and they're reminding themselves that you made everything. So, you know, when you woke up this morning and if you had a look out through the window and you saw the sky, you saw the clouds, the sun, the trees, he made all of it. Uh, You know, my my wife and I, we were in New Zealand and our last day on the camper van trip, uh, we were in this wonderful place called Lake Takapo and uh, it's known uh, for having some of the clearest skies in the world. 
there's an observatory set up there, so you can go out there to stargaze. And we were just, unfortunately, the observatory is closed for us, so we couldn't uh, actually go inside. But we just went out for a walk at night, and we, we gazed up at the sky. And we saw a, a sky filled with thousands of stars. And God, the creator of all things, he made all of them. These blazing balls of gas and heat, you know, thankfully far away enough from us that uh, we wouldn't burn to death. He made everything. He made the universe and the galaxies, this earth that we're on. And he made us. He formed us. We keep going. They say, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram. So this is a God who chose you. He handpicked you. He thought of you before. He formed you in your mother's womb. And he chose you. There's something great. There's something personal and intentional and specific about being chosen. And, and this God, this creator, he chose you. He looked at you, he thought of you, and he chose you to be a part of his family. And we go on. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring. The land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Pezzarite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. So once again, this is a God who sees us. He sees our suffering. And I don't know if you think of that very often, especially when you're going through those hard times. But I just want to remind you that this God, he sees you. He actually has his gaze set upon you. He sees you in your sufferings. He sees you in your afflictions. If you're going through something difficult, something painful right now, I just want to let you know, I just want to remind you in his word that he sees you. And not only that, he doesn't just see the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt, of us, but it says... And he heard their cry. He hears you. Uh, it doesn't matter if your cry is extremely vocal and expressive or it's very quiet and it's inward. He's God. When you cry out to him, he actually hears you. And, you know, this is really recounting that amazing Exodus story, right, where God delivered his people from Egypt. And so what we read is, this God performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. You made a name for yourself as it is to this day, and you divided the sea before them. So that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. And really this uh, beautiful image, this terrifying, 
powerful image of God splitting the very oceans, the seas, to make a way for his people to be saved. That is all of us, uh, that, that is all of our stories. God, you saved us. You delivered us. Do you remember your own story of salvation? Do you remember how God has saved you? How he has saved you from your sin? How he has saved you from the punishment and the fate of your sin? Eternal death, a life and an eternity after that of being separated from your maker. A life that is in monochrome, black and white. A life that is continuously restless and will not find its rest until you find it in him. He saved you. Not only that, but we read here that this God, you led them by a pillar of cloud in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. God, you are the one who leads us. Do you know that? Do you know that when you are feeling directionless and lost, you have a shepherd who not only pursue you and reclaim you, but he will lead you. He will lead you in every single season of life, the highs and the lows, he will be your constant. He will be your compass. He will lead you to rest. And he will lead you to follow him. And this God came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath. So this is a God who commands Sabbath rest in us. He knows that we're limited. He knows that if we keep going at the rate that we want to go, uh, it will not be good for us. We will burn out. We will crumble. This is a God who commands Sabbath rest for us to pause. That's what uh, the Hebrew word uh, Shabbat for Sabbath means. It means to pause before him, to be still and know that he is God. He cares about our rest. And there's also a God who commanded uh, statutes and a law. So this is a God who gives us a way to live. He's given you a way to live. A way to live that results in human flourishing. A way to live that glorifies his name and gives you joy. As we go on in verse 15, uh, it says, You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. As a beautiful reminder that we see in verse 15 is simply that this is a God who provides. And, you know, I, I can't count 
I can't keep count of all the, the amazing testimonies and stories of provision. Uh, some uh, very ordinary, some very miraculous uh, in our church community. It's the ways that God has provided. Uh, you know, whether it's material or it's spiritual, it's emotional, uh, this is a God who provides exactly what we need. He will not let us. Uh, he will not let us starve. And I would encourage you to think upon those times where God has provided for you. Nothing that you did to deserve that kind of provision. It's not some kind of financial exchange. You didn't purchase anything from him, but simply out of grace, just like he did for the Israelites in the wilderness. You know, raining bread from heaven, bringing water out of a rock. God is someone who ultimately provides for you. And as we kind of continue throughout the rest of this passage, I'm going to go a little bit quicker. Uh, in verse 20, we read that this is a God who gave his good spirit. Right? You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You know, this God gives us his very presence, right? his Holy Spirit, to teach us, to instruct us, to comfort us, to lead us. Right? Christianity is not just some set of rules and regulations. It is a vibrant, real, personal relationship with a living God who's given us his very presence, his Holy Spirit. And his Spirit is with you right now. His Spirit lives within you. His presence is with you. Forty years, you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. You know, um, isn't God's keeping power uh, so wonderful and so great? It's hard to see it in the moments of perseverance and enduring. But when you think back upon those seasons of perseverance and enduring those seasons that formed your character, that led you to a greater humility and dependence on God. And you think about how God's hand was upon your life in those moments where you wanted to just give up and, and just walk away. But the Lord sustained you. The Lord kept you. This is our God. Verse 22, you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted them to every corner. You multiply their children. Verse 23, as the stars of heaven, you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. And so the descendants went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand. And this is talking about the original promise that God made with Abraham. And what we need to glean from this is that God is a God who keeps his promises. He's faithful to keep his promises. 
doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter how bad it seems. It doesn't matter how unlikely it seems. You can laugh at the, the ridiculousness of God fulfilling his promises because your circumstances just seem so out of death and out of, uh, just, just, just impossible. But this is a God who keeps his promises. He's faithful. And then we go through the rest of chapter 9. And we see uh, much of the same in verse 27. It says, you heard them from heaven. It's talking about God hearing his people again. It even says, you abandoned them into the hand of their enemies. And, you know, that sounds a bit harsh. That sounds a bit cruel. But what this is talking about is a God who disciplines those he loves. A God who will discipline us to, to taste the result of our evil. To actually understand that when we push God out of the frame, it's not good for us. That it's painful. And the amazing thing is, in verse 28, right after it says, you abandon them into the hand of their enemies, it says, yet, when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. Just this faithful, relentless, gracious love that God has set upon his people. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. And this is a God who warns us. He gives us a chance to respond, to obey. And at the very end uh, of this recollection in verse 31, the people say, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. And they're talking about the history of God's people in Israel. For you are a gracious and merciful God. And how wonderful is that? That at the very bottom, that at the very end, God will never forsake his people. Even if they are disobedient and idolatrous, and they say one thing and they do something else the next and they do it all over again and again and again. At the very bottom, what you find are these eternally everlasting, secure hands of grace. God will never forsake his people. And the beautiful thing about what we just kind of went through in Nehemiah 9 is everything, everything that the people talk about here is really focused on God, who you are and what you've done. 
nothing to do with what we've done. It's not dependent on what the people have done or who the people have been. It's, it's, it's God you made, God you chose, God you saw, God you heard, you delivered, you led us, you came down and spoke, you commanded Sabbath rest, you're the one who provided for us, you gave us your good spirit. You sustained us in the wilderness. You kept all of your promises. And at the very end, God, you did not forsake us. Do you remember who this God is? This is our God. This is the God who has set his love upon you. Do you remember this God? And throughout this text, um, we do see a few things about what we do as God's people. And you see it in verse 16, first of all. So after 15 verses of just recounting uh, the history of God's goodness and his faithfulness, you know, first to Abraham and then throughout the Exodus. Uh, the people gathered uh, in the book of Nehemiah in Jerusalem, they recount themselves and they say, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. And then it's literally the same thing. It's like a time loop, stuck and repeat. Verse 26, this is after recounting that God kept all of his promises and led them into the promised land. Verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. 29, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. They turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. It's the same thing over and over again. And, you know, we've just had some time to, to meditate on what this passage is reminding us about who God is. And I want us to think about what this passage tells us about who we are. And maybe, you know, you've just heard and, and read what we've read here, what the people are repeating. And you just think of all the ways that you disobey God. You know, the ways that you don't keep your devotional life Steady the ways that uh, you are disregarding and disrespectful to your spouse, the ways uh, that you have been dishonest, maybe at work or with your colleagues, uh, the ways that uh, you have lied and cheated. But the chief admission here that the people of Israel are making, it's actually not like that. It's not actually a horizontal one. They're not talking about all the ways that they've 
you know, shacked up with foreigners when they were told not to. They're not talking about the ways that they've hated each other, the ways they've been greedy in the marketplace. You know, they're not talking about the lies that they've told. In every repetition here, they're talking about idolatry. It's an admission of idolatry. And um, it's most vivid in verse 18, right after the first time when they say, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And that's really literally idolatry, right? That's what it means to, to, to craft or uh, make an image of, of God that is not God and to worship that instead. I don't know what you think about when we use that word idolatry. I, I do know that it sounds very religious and very harsh. Uh, no one wants to be told or accused of having been idolatrous. It sounds so ancient and archaic. Like, who speaks like that? But idolatry in the Bible is really the sin beneath all of those other sins. Right? Beneath lying and cheating and wronging other people and you know, disobeying God's laws. Idolatry is the sin beneath all other sins. And idolatry simply, it's, it's really the de-guarding of God, this God who we just reminded ourselves of. It's the de-guarding of the God who is the Lord, the God who made all things, the God who chose you before the foundation of the world to know him, the God who sees and hears his people, the God who delivers and saves his people, the God who leads his people in the desert place, who sustains them, the God who is the one who provides for all of his people's needs, the God who gives his good spirit to his people, the God who keeps all of his promises, the God who never, ever forsakes his people, even in light of their disobedience. It's the de-guarding of that God by other desires, by other obligations, by other pursuits. And the simple fact of the matter is that you and me were idolaters. We commit idolatry all the time. We de-guard God. We do God the God who is the most important and beautiful and altogether good and faithful and worthy person. We do God that God. You know, we started uh, today by kind of sharing that A.W. Tozer quote, what comes into your mind when you think about God, that's the most important thing about you. And I have to say to you, and I have to also say to me, if when we think about God and what comes into our minds is not all of what we just read, the God who is altogether the Lord, the creator, 
the good and faithful, relentlessly loving, the God who will never forsake his people, God. And something is terribly broken. Something is very wrong. Something is very out of whack in us. And that's what the people, as they gather together, as they read from the book of the law, as they're reminded of who this God is, that's what they realize. We are idolaters. And so in verse 32, they say, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps the covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship Hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. Verse 33, this is their admission. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. See, what they're saying is, your God, you made us. You saved us. You're faithful and good. And you have still not forsaken us. And we forgot. We forgot. We lived as if it wasn't true. We lived as if none of this mattered. You are God. And we forgot. That's what they're saying. And I wonder, even as you look through the screen, if that resonates with you, because it should. We are some of the most forgetful creatures ever in existence. This is the God who has set his attention, his salvation, his affection, his personal relationship upon us, and we forget. And we need to be able to say, from wherever we are today, God, this is who you are, and I forgot. I'm sorry. I know that's the confession of my heart so often, maybe every day. It needs to be the confession of all of our hearts. And we need to come back and remind ourselves of who this God is. Because if we're not doing that, the reality is that practically you can be an atheist while with your mouth say that you're a Christian. And that is not right. It's what the people in the days of Nehemiah, they realize, you're God. You made us. You saved us. You're faithful and good all of your ways, and we forgot. We lived as if it wasn't true. And so what they end up doing is they are 
cut to the heart. And I hope that you are too, as God's Spirit does a work right now in you. And in chapter 10, they seal a covenant uh, with God. Uh, This is a practical outworking. It's an expression of their realization, right? This is what their repentance looks like. They seal a covenant and... uh, I just want to read a little bit of verse t- uh, of chapter 10 uh, to tell you what that actually means. So uh, they gather together. Uh, they say, It says in verse 29, they do something really heavy. They enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord. Uh, our Lord and his rules and his statutes. And then at the very end of chapter 10, they also make an oath, we will not neglect the house of our God. Uh, So these are two things that I would like for us to think about. First is that they enter into a curse, and that's a big deal. This is not just a promise that they're making. This is an oath that has consequences of disobedience. And the consequence is that they would be cursed by God if they disobey. And if the application that I was to give to you today was, hey, let's all recommit to our covenant uh, with God. Let's enter into a curse to obey I think that would be a hard word for all of us to hear because then probably tomorrow we would be cursed by God. And that's why um, in this time in the Old Testament, there was such a focus on the house of God, on the temple. Because under the Old Covenant, under the system of the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood, this was how they would not be cursed. By atoning for their sins, by killing something and spilling blood in their own place, you know, that thing would be cursed instead. And that's why they commit to not neglecting the house of God. That's the covenant that they seal. Uh, The temple is really important to them. It's this great meeting place where God would meet a sinful people. It's a place where they would recommit and be reconciled to God as his covenant people, a place where their sins would be forgiven. And for us, as we think about what it means to to seal the covenant with God. I want us to think about what the temple is for us now. Because it's not this church building that we're in. It's not a physical space. In the Bible, in John chapter 2, Jesus talks about himself as the temple. Right? He says that I am the temple... And 
what he's really saying is that he is the ultimate meeting place where God meets sinners. He's the ultimate place where people will be reconciled to God. It's in him. And, you know, when we struggle uh, in any and every way, and I know all of us too, because don't you hate... uh, then you hate receiving an answer to you know, the question, how are you doing? And people just say, good, or okay. That's not really true. Like, how are you really doing? Reality is that we all have struggles. We all have things. We all have burdens. We all have things that we're ashamed about. When we have struggles in any and every way, uh, the, the problem really is that we have forgotten who God is. And not only have we forgotten who God is, but we have alienated ourselves from him. That was a problem for the people in Nehemiah's time. After years of exile, of slogging it along, of hardship, of fending for themselves, they forgot who God is, and they had alienated themselves from him. But you know, as we go through this text, as we think about Jesus as this temple, as this great meaning place, that we have access to God through reconciliation with God in. Uh, it's amazing that all these descriptions of who God is they're possible for us. They're a reality for us uh, in Christ. Now you, God, are the one who made heaven. And Christ is the one at the beginning of time as a member of the Trinity, as a member of the Godhead. He's the one who made heaven and all things, all of creation. He made us You are the Lord who chose Abram. Uh, Again, Christ, as a member of the Godhead, uh, he's the one who set his affection and his salvation upon us before the foundation of the world. He chose us to be a part of his family. Christ saw the afflictions that we were going through. He saw the depravity of our sin. He saw the sinful state that we were in and the suffering that we were enduring, the hopelessness that we had. He heard our cries. And he divided the sea by coming to this earth as a human being and doing something unthinkable, doing something impossible, doing something that we would never have fathomed. Who would have ever fathomed that God himself would come and die a sinner's death for the very people who sinned against him. And he's the one who came down. He spoke to us 
as a very image of God, as a very mouthpiece of God. He made known to us a Sabbath rest that we can only find in Him. He is the one who did not abolish the law, but fulfilled the law and gave us a new law, right? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love others. And here's the thing you know, when we think about the gospel, when we think about Christ's division of the sea, his saving grace, his salvation, we think a lot about the death that he died. And that's, you know, a, a great thing to meditate on, right? It was a horrible, torturous, agonizing death being hung on a cross. But that really isn't the pinnacle of his agony. The, 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 the high point of the agony that Christ endured was when he became a curse for us. The high point of the agony that Christ endured was as a member of this trinity, one who pre-existed with the Father and the Holy Spirit since before time, one who had perfect love and unity in that trinity. He left the trinity, he came to earth, and he fulfilled the law that we could never fulfill. And then as he hung up on that cross, yes, he died a painful, torturous death, but there was a moment. There was a moment where God saw his afflictions. And he heard his cries. And he turned his face away. There was a moment where an eternal pre-existing member of the Godhead was forsaken by God the Father. And he became a curse that we would not be cursed. He was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. He was ignored so that we would never be ignored. That God would see us and he would hear our cries. And so for us, our temple is Jesus. And this, as we remember who this God is, right? this God who made us, who chose us, who saw us, who heard our cries, who delivered us from sin and death, who leads us through all the valleys and the good times, the God who came down, from the mountain and spoke to us, the God who has given us his word, the God who commands Sabbath rest, the God who has given us a new way to live, the God who sustains us in the wilderness, the God who has given us his Holy Spirit, the God who keeps all of his promises, no matter how unlikely it seems, the God who will never, ever forsake you. I want you to join me in recommitting to this covenant 
by saying we will not neglect the temple of God. We will, not ne- we will not neglect Jesus. We will stop living as if he is an add-on. We'll stop living in forgetfulness as if he can just be someone who is tolerated as someone we go to when we need things, as someone we might reminisce and think about when we're at church. We will not neglect our temple, Jesus. He is the most important thing about you. What you think, what you think about him and what comes to mind when you think about Jesus, that is the most important thing about you. It's more important than you getting your rest, your physical rest. It's more important than you having your schedule organized. It's more important than you being financially successful, having your family all put together pursuing your interests and things that give you passion, what you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you. And he is worthy. He's the Lord. And he's all together. In all of his ways, he's good and faithful. And he will never, ever forsake you. So let us not neglect the temple of God. Let us not neglect Jesus in our lives. And I I just want to take a moment to invite you, before I close in prayer, to just spend a minute just confessing, remembering who God is, confessing that you have neglected Him, and sealing this new covenant, which has already been ironclad and sealed in his blood. It's not even a sealing, really. It's just committing, just remembering, just living out this new covenant that he has instated. We will not neglect you, Jesus. I will not neglect you, Jesus, in my life. And I'm sorry if I have. So let's just take a minute. And you can do that silently. You can do that out loud. Remember who God is. And let's uh, let's commit to this covenant.
God. You are the Lord. You are Yahweh. You alone. You made everything. You made us. You chose us. You saw us in our afflictions and you heard all of our cries. You delivered us by doing the impossible, by coming down and taking our place yourself and dying the death and experiencing the separation that we deserved. You gave us your word. You commanded Sabbath rest and you gave us a new way to live. You have provided for us in, in uncount, uh, uncountable, numerous ways. You gave us your spirit. You sustain us in the wilderness. You keep all of your promises. You're faithful. And even when we forget you, which is a lot, you're ready to forgive. And you will never, ever forsake us. That's who you are. And we confess that so often we have neglected you. We have lived as if you don't matter. We confess that just in life, you so often are not the most important thing about us. But we are your people. And under the new covenant that Christ established by his death, and his resurrection on the cross. Lord, you chose us and you've adopted us into your family all over again. So we recommit, we remember this covenant and we will not neglect Jesus. But we want him to be yeah, the number one, the most important affection uh, of our hearts. So we pray that every single day, every morning would be an opportunity for us to know who you are again as we look out the window. Lord, may your creation sing of your beauty and your glory to us as we go throughout our day. Would you give us a, a weight, just a tug, to be in your word in some way, to, to, to feast from the riches of your word? Or would you give us a heart to be in communication and fellowship with you as we pray just continuously? And when we forget you, Lord, remind us that you are ready to forgive, that you are merciful and compassionate and gracious May we be a people who are quick to repent and come in faith, sealing this covenant 
and the blood that Christ shed. So we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we thank you for your church. Uh, we thank you for just your sovereignty and your providence over all things, over our lives, even as we go through this season of COVID. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.